You're listening to The Hoof of the Horse, a podcast dedicated to farriery and equine science with Dr. Simon Curtis. Sponsorship for this episode is from the Hoof Care Essentials Foundation and their partners, Glue You Adhesives. I was really keen to go down and see Ben Benson for this latest podcast uh, because he'd recently returned from the Tokyo Olympics, uh, where, as you will learn, he was head farrier for the third time, quite an achievement for a farrier. And so I wanted to ask him a number of things about that, uh, alongside all the other usual questions that I'm going to ask any person that I interview for the podcast, how they got into the craft, and the one or two specials that we ask, the quick buyer questions, and additionally, uh, the deep philosophical question. So you've got all those to come. Sit back and enjoy a listen to my podcast with Farrier Ben Benson. down to speak to Ben Benson in a really beautiful part of the UK called the Cotswolds, right in the centre of Britain. And I've spent a day with him uh, shoeing, and now we're doing a podcast. Thanks for agreeing to this, Ben. You're very welcome. Pleasure to have you. That's okay. So one of the main reasons I've come to speak to Ben is because he's probably still slightly jet-lagged. He's just got back from uh, the Tokyo Olympics, well, three weeks ago. Um, but So we're going to cover that a little bit in a while. But of course, the first question I've got to ask you, Ben, is um, how did you get into farriery? Um, I was very fortunate. Uh, my father was a farrier, so I grew up around horses and around shoeing all my life. As a little kid in the back of the, uh, the, back of the van with him, hitting scrap shoes and doing stuff while he was working on horses, and he encouraged me. And then um, my mum didn't actually want me to be a farrier. Um, there's not a lot of horses where I come from and they get shod twice a year, whether they need it or not. Uh, and one of those is always before the Royal Welsh Show. Um, and, and, and where was that? Was that West uh, Wales? So, yeah, West Wales near Aberystwyth, um, right in the middle on the coast. And mum wanted me to do something else. So I got my city and guilds in um, computer-aided design and a national diploma in engineering and then said to mum, I want to do this now. And I uh, was very fortunate. I did my pre-farry at Morton Morrill and then I got an apprenticeship with Hayden Price who uh, really opened my eyes and uh, yeah, showed me what the big world's like outside. Okay, well, that's what, what a person to go and do your apprenticeship with. Um, you know, Hayden is, is renowned around the world, really, as a speaker and shoes lots of sports horses, which um, undoubtedly you've got a good training on that. And then you did some training closer to here, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I, I worked with Hayden and... Um, then I finished my apprenticeship um, in Chipping Norton with Dave Smith, DP Smith, um, and that again was amazing. You know, um, Dave took me on and really gave me the fire to do uh, to, to work more with the competition shoeing, uh, and I did a lot of competing with him, uh, and I was very fortunate. I won national champion apprentice, and was on the Wales team uh, all the way through my apprenticeship. And Dave really helped me with 
shoemaking the fundamentals and, and give me a thirst again for not just the ability to shoe horses but also to make the shoe to fit exactly how you want it to be on the foot. And we've um, been this morning with you, shoeing with your two apprentices and I think certainly the hind shoes were handmade and there's an awful lot of handmade shoes made for stock in your business isn't yeah. there? Yeah, um, we're probably running at about sort of 25% handmade which is depends on the, the year of the apprentices that I've got. Um, so obviously when they're at the point where they're making nice shoes then it's nice to have lots of handmaids but as you know the cost of steel now is is increased by 100% this year alone so the viability bit makes it quite hard so I'm very fortunate I've got a couple of really good lads which is where I can really utilise that um, but with a lot of the sport horses that we shoe mostly work in dressage and on arenas we put a lot of three quarter fullard shoes on so we tend to make hand make our concave shoes uh, and then we might make the, the, some of the remedial shoes or some of the three-quarter fuller shoes, but mostly it's it's machine-made that we use. Well, if somebody can make concave, they can usually make any yeah. any shoe, can't yeah. they? Yeah, that, exactly. The Once they master the fuller, then everything else is, uh, is the same. And, and tell me, um, because it was sports horses I saw this morning, that's the mainstay of your business, is it? Yeah, 85% of my clients are professional. Um, and that, that would be um, m mostly yards, uh, multiple, so bigger, bigger horse drops uh, with professional riders. And then the other 15% that I have are roughly some leisure. We have seven donkeys that we look after and a goat. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we have uh, the full spectrum of horses uh, in the business. But, yeah, the majority of my work is, is with performance Horses, so dressage, show jump, event, some race horses. And you had uh, the horses this morning come into your forge. Mm -hmm. Is that um, uh, is that what normally happens, or do no. you, what sort of percentage come to your forge? So uh, we were really lucky. Um, I've moved into the forge here. I built it and uh, moved in about five years ago. I think you mean you adapted it because yeah, exactly. we've already discovered yeah, it's three hundred years yeah. old. So, so the the buildings obviously yeah the buildings were much older. Um, but we, we built the forge in here five years ago um, and we use it but basically as either some of the local horses that perhaps it's easier for me to shoe if they come to me because they're within a hacking distance. Uh, we're on an equestrian facility here so there's probably 40 horses on site um, and then I have horses from outside the area that I can't travel to. Yeah. So we might have horses, I've had horses that come up from as far as um, Dorset, come down, I have horses that come down from Cheshire. Have to tell me how many miles from uh, I'm out well, of my Blanford area. Forum. So what, no, I know Blanford Forum, but I don't know how far it is uh, from here. What would that be? A couple of hundred? I don't know, Ben. Yeah. I'm in a different part of the country myself. <laughs> well, there we go. We've even got farriers that come over from Newmarket to see me. So uh, <laughs> well, now, <laughs> now, now you're you're a bit of a guru. Yeah, well, but we'll we're going to get onto that. Why you're a guru? Okay. Yeah, uh, in a while, but so we probably we probably have between three and five a week coming in on average. Some weeks we might have more, um, but like I said, it comes in cycles. The, the horses that generally come in, if they're not based on the on the farm, uh, within the facility here, then they're generally coming in. And you know, the referral horses come in normally have a six to twelve month lifespan of coming into you because it's either fixed and better, and you passed it back to the farriers, which is what we try and do. Um, so some some years we can have you know thirty a month coming in. Uh, and other times it might drop back a little bit to sort of, you know, 10 or 12 a month. 
Well, you have this marvellous facility. What I loved about it is, yes, it's an old building of maybe up to 300 years old, but it's so beautifully lit. It's got a good floor. It's all safe. It's because we knew you were coming, so that's why it smells of paint. And uh, the elder grass is freshly cut for you, Simon, because I wanted you to... Wow. Yeah, this must be like when you go anywhere normally. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put a new Lucy on as well. Yeah, you saw that too. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. Um, what I want to do is, is get into the Olympic thing a little bit. Um, so how many Olympics have you been to? So this, is my, this was my third Olympics. Okay, so... Third Olympics, yeah. L- London, Rio... London, Rio and Tokyo. Now Tokyo. Yeah. And has your job changed in that time? Um, no, I was very fortunate. So in London and Rio, uh, I was so in London. I was the head fire for the Paralympics, and I was effectively two IC for Jim. Um, Jim. Jim Blurton, sorry. Okay. Um, so Jim and I pretty much set the department up between us. We we. Did quite, we ran it quite differently to other Olympics previous that have been our farrier nominated and he's looked after the whole event with a couple of assistants. We had much more volunteer involvement, um, but farriers obviously work individually, so we had to sort of put operating procedures together, which sounds silly, but actually we had to put structure in place and, and we have a basic, which is you're there in a first aid capacity on every arena, but then also if a horse is lame or there is a there is a problem, then how you can help and support it uh, and act as a referral. Um, so we had to put all these things in place. So I uh, like to think we did a pretty good job in London. And so, then we invited back to Rio. Yeah. And then obviously I was fortunate enough to be given a call for Tokyo. So just to clarify, you're working for the Olympic Committee. Correct, yes. So we're not assigned to Olympic yeah. Committee. So, so we're not assigned to a team. Uh, every Olympics there is there is a human hospital. And at the equestrian uh, side, there is an equestrian hospital. So I was the head farrier for the equestrian hospital for the Olympic venue. So we are there to support any team that has a problem. Um, uh, in Tokyo, there are about five teams took their own farriers. Normally there's about 10. Um, and you act as either the first team farrier if they don't have a team farrier. So a country like, for example, Venezuela might turn up with two or three horses they don't have those facilities so you then become their team farrier um, and then we also act as a second referral farrier should a team farrier have a question or and or, how many other farriers are there there uh, under you um so uh we pretty much have about 20 uh that come in um sometimes a little more sometimes a little less the big thing is obviously because the ioc is run um as as any big organisation does, it has to have shifts, and the working day is quite long with horses, so it's normally broken into two two shifts, which is why you have so many people in. So you would have uh, five arenas running at any one time, plus a couple of other places that there might be horses grazing or uh, and in the forge as well. So you you can have five or six locations that need people to be at. So where there's an FEI steward, there's always a vet, and there's always a farrier. Okay. Um, and then you've got two shifts. So so ten people seems like a lot, but actually they can be swallowed up in a in a venue that size. Plus then you've got two shifts that you need to have people in. It's not fair to have them in for too long. You obviously like doing it, otherwise you wouldn't Um I, I find it a challenge. I think that's the thing I think you you're in 
in the most amazing part of the the world, you see the most amazing horses in the world doing the, the most amazing sport, and you've got a front seat, front row ticket for it. Plus, as well, it's a bit of an adrenaline thing when you do get asked to do something or you do have to do something. It's like the ultimate test, um, and you're not there necessarily to be in the front row and be high fiving with everyone, but it's that quiet knowledge that you were part of that team that went on to or that horse that competed and completed even you know and of course there's been a couple of things come out of the olympics um there was uh, a horse that suffered laminitis and i understand you have to be professional uh, about it but did you have any knowledge of this any involvement yeah yeah so i was involved uh, uh, an early part in it which was which was really good you know the owner recognized there was something not quite right and um it was to be fair uh, it was a great um uh, exercise in in how we all work together professionally and we were able to to help identify the problem and then identify what we needed to do um and i'm really glad to say that the horse was supported from the start of it we you know identified the areas that we needed to help help the owner and the rider and the, and the horse with and um yeah you know the the greatest part of it is not many horses so we were able to identify quite quickly what the problem was and put things in place and and put the support in uh, and i think the greatest achievement is there's not many horses that can go down with laminitis that managed to fly a fortnight later so we were able to support the horse and and give the horse enough uh, cover and and help to get it back on that plane and it traveled safely back to germany and now it's in the best of uh, best of care and uh, i'm sure we'll make a, a full recovery all right that's great news uh the other thing that i picked up on from the outside was that originally i saw on social media that the swedish team competed barefoot they did they did compete barefoot and yet the pictures i saw had glue on the feet so the two horses that were there they weren't they didn't actually have glue on their feet um i know i was really interested i was very lucky to have a conversation with pedder uh himself who came around to the forge and we chatted about and that's their fairy. that's no that's their their top rider okay um and he he was silver in the in individual um and it was really interesting because he said that for him, he does put glue on their feet. He effectively builds a plastic horseshoe on their yeah. foot um, in order to protect their foot as much as he can. He wears a lot of hoof boots uh, if he's going out on any rough surfaces. But he said he felt that at that time it was okay that the horse had had, like all these horses do, um, things that, that they'd been working with and, and trying to support. And he'd spent some time barefoot and he'd brought the horse back into work and it was quite sound still. So he felt at that point he didn't need to change anything. But he did say that when he jumps on grass, he puts shoes back on so he can have stud holes. Uh, he has quite a thin shoe. Um, but he can get stud holes in because he realises how he needs that traction. Um, but ultimately, he did admit as well also that the reason he was able to be there barefoot was because it was a flat surface, it was a soft surface, and the horse was, was able to walk everywhere on rubber matting. So it never really touched concrete or tarmac. Um, and that's how he was able to, to, to maintain that horse being barefoot. But I saw pictures of a Swedish horse and it definitely had a polymer urethane 
glue, glue hmm. rebuild, rim rebuild, or a synthetic shoe, if you want to call it that. Was it there? Because I, the, I looked at both horses and I didn't see a... Okay. Maybe they... Uh, you can't say this no. anything. Well, I, don't yeah, say it, oh, Ben. Oh, We're going right. to keep editing this. <laughs> no, don't okay. say it. All right. So, so we'll leave that. All right, what was your daily routine then as, as the head farrier there? Uh, so daily routine, we'd get picked up from the hotel about half four. Um, uh, sorry, we'd wake up at half four, and then we'd get picked up at about ten to five. Uh, then we'd get the bus in, take about 30 minutes, and then we would be on the venue then. Arenas would open, stables would open at 6 a.m. They'd be open then for horses to be exercised and worked and grazed, etc., till about midday. Then uh, everything closes because it gets really hot. And then that's generally the bit where if there's a problem or anything's arisen that they've spent a day and a night staring at and it hasn't got any better, then normally they ask you then um, when they can't avoid it anymore. So uh, we generally find that people, you know, if there's a shoe that's come off or nails that have risen or a split or a crack or a shoe's moved or something like that, then we do it in the lunchtime. Um, and then everything would reopen then at about four thirty, five o'clock, and then it would everything would shut. Stables would shut then at ten a.m. Uh, sorry, ten p.m. And then uh, we'd normally finish our shift at. Going up some sushi or? Well, well, no. Unfortunately, <laughs> we we were we were all in quarantine for the first fourteen oh. days, so you were limited to venue or your hotel room. So there, there was food available, obviously on on site. Um, but it wasn't as the, the good sushi that you, we all were all looking forward to in Tokyo. Um, so, yeah, we, we were very fortunate. To and how to, long were you there for? So I was there for three and a half weeks, okay. uh, but I did two weeks at the test event before in 19, um, but this time, yeah, it was, it was three and a half weeks. Uh, okay, well, you, you mentioned about how hot it was, and I was going to ask you about the climate and what the weather was like there and did it have any effect upon the hooves especially? Yeah, definitely. It, it had a huge effect, huge effect. So a lot of horses that, that went over, um, it was so humid that a lot of the feet really struggled with it at the start. Um, we were fortunate we didn't have many problems in the competition itself because we were able to actually, when people came over, there was such a, a change in the humidity and the temperature that a lot of feet instantly uh, shrunk. So we had a lot more risen clenches uh, and, and cracks and splits appear. So we were doing a lot of rebuilding with glue. I mean, obviously, the thing is, that at an event like that, we're not there to change things. That horse has got to that point at the pinnacle of its career with the feet it has. It's not for you to change it. So you try and find a way to, to facilitate that horse competing for the next week. So sometimes the work you're doing wouldn't be, wouldn't be as pretty or as aesthetically pleasing as you like, but actually it's functional. So we'd be replacing nails, um, reclenching a lot of feet. Most horses, in some way, shape or form, had, had something done. Uh, we're rebuilding some walls where they were quite brittle. Um, a lot of horses that went over with leather pads on their feet had to be cut out and changed because the temperature that the surface was at in the middle of the day could be near sort of 38, 40 degrees. So the horse w working on that for half an hour meant that when the horse came back in, it was then standing on rubber mattening. So a lot of the time, a lot of the pads really shrunk uh, and anything, any packing under that as well was really affected. So horses with 
some of the, like the, the frog matrix and stuff like that, we found that was balling up quite a bit. So we were cutting quite a few pads out. Um, and, and let me just say, for those that don't deal in, in, in Celsius, but deal in Fahrenheit, I think 38 to 40 is about 105, 110 degrees Fahrenheit, the surface. So it's pretty warm. Yeah, you, you couldn't really hold the shoes when they first came back in. You wouldn't really want to keep hold of it, um, which says a lot, you know, when you think about it. Um, and, and certainly the, the ambient temperature there was, was quite considerable. If you left a bucket of water out overnight at 8 o'clock in the morning, that water would be about 22 degrees. Okay. Which is about 75 Fahrenheit. Yeah. Just to show that I can... Still do it. I can translate, yeah. Um, so, so, okay, the surface was hot, but um, were the surfaces different that the horses worked on in, in the arenas and the cross-country? Did that have any effect? So, I think, yes. I think a lot of the riders found the surface there quite firm. And certainly, you know, from my own memory from walking around at London and Rio, it felt on the firm side, even to the surfaces that a lot of my horses work on over here. Um, it was, you know, a lot of the time with surfaces, they use the sand that is found in that country. Uh, whereas in Tokyo, they'd actually imported the sand from the Netherlands, the surface, and it, it was actually quite firm. Um, and there wasn't much cut in it. So when you walked across it, one of the big indicators I found straight away was you didn't see many hoof prints. You'd see, you know, you know, the side of the hoof where it had gouged in or a horse had come on a corner or a toe had, had driven into the surface slightly, but there weren't, well, there weren't any hoof prints. And the jumpers quite liked it because obviously it gave a real firm takeoff. Um, yeah. But, you know, from, from the dressage and the eventing point of view, I think, you know, it, 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 was, it was quite hard on them at times. Um, the, the cross country, um, out in that part of Tokyo, they don't actually have grass like we have. So actually the whole cross country course was built on a reclaimed rubbish dump. Uh, and over the last seven or eight years, they've landscaped it and uh, shaped it. And then they completely laid turf, which was grown, it was either grown abroad or it was grown in a greenhouse. And they laid a specific grass all around the equestrian venue and the cross country course so that, so that they could run the horses on it. And did that cut up or slip? Do you know what? It rode beautifully on the cross country. It was it was really considering, considering how hot it was. There was a lot of watering that went on, uh, and I know like on the cross country course, obviously with the grass, it was being watered three or four times a day, but the surface on the uh, the man made surface in the equestrian venue, they were putting twenty mil of water on that a day, just to keep the. You're really the testing harmonics. me out here. That's three quarters of an inch, isn't it? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, which when you think of the size of the area. Yeah, to get to it, it's a hell of a lot of water, isn't it? Yeah. Okay, so um, uh, so are you going to the Paris Olympics? Do you know? Uh, I don't. Paris, you know, like with every Olympics, the the the, the following Olympics always comes round and discusses things with you, and you know that they, you know, we've uh, we've had had chats, so you never really know. I mean, and that's only in three years' time, isn't it? Because exactly. Yeah. Like, exactly. Yeah. They're they're maintaining their their course of. Uh, of aiming for 2024 um I, I don't know i mean the one thing i'd say is i think I've, you know three olympics i've i've had a great time at each and each one's been a well would you awesome like thing. to go because um, i'll put a word in for you <laughs> um i'm i'm uh i, I don't know is the honest answer i think it's you know each one's a different and i think when you start discussing things with the organized committee you get a feel for 
yeah. how it is. Um, I've had an opportunity uh, to perhaps look at working, you know, with different teams here and there. Um, but I've I've always enjoyed working for the commissions because yeah. you you the, when you're with a team, if the team's having a great time, it's an amazing place to be. But if the team's having a bad run, then it's it's a real pressure cooker to be in. Yeah. And the fortunate part is where we're doing it. If anyone we're with we're we're neutral, so we're always having a, a good time, and it's a, it's a great place to be. A lot of the farriers come to the to the forge. It's like the farriers' common room. They will get a chance to have a cup of tea, uh, you know, a chat, a moan, and uh, and, and talk shoeing, which is you know it's what we all want. Isn't it? Well, when the worship when when the Olympics were in London, two thousand twelve, the worship company farriers uh, struck some medals and certificates for yeah. every farrier because. Yeah. We we reckon that yeah the, the the horses and the riders get enough glory yeah but we wanted the farriers. Oh, to, it's a great to, gesture. A lot of the international guys were blown away with that. Yeah, it was so. a really nice, really nice. And I still have mine now. I still have my certificate and my medal. Yeah, no, I I thought it was a good thing to it was do. A lovely and, gesture. And it was a good party. It was I, really good. Which was more interesting to me because <laughs> I was never going to get one of the medals or the certificates, so I was interested in the party. So we don't really know about Paris, but I should think three weeks after going through all that and getting back and trying to yeah. catch up with your business, you're probably not thinking that way anyway, but uh, give it another year then. Yeah, and you exactly. Might be that thinking itch about, might need scratching. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you some quick fire questions, and I don't want you dallying over okay. these. Go for it. Prevaricating. No, we'll go straight. From the all head. right. Grey or chestnut? Grey. Loop knife or straight knife? Depends what make, but generally I'd say loop. Uh, Tokyo or Rio? Rio. Better because of COVID. I think Tokyo was amazing, but Rio, we had a great time. The The farriers were brilliant and took us out to all their best restaurants. And I'm Jim Blurton, I've never seen him nearly colic from eating so much prime beef <laughs> and drinking beer. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, Brazil, that's all the... It was great. Beef and black beans, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. And... Um, Final one, England or Wales? Oh, Wales, every time. <laughs> and, and where are you earning your living? Well, England, but I'm sending, it back to a, I'm sending it back to an <laughs> offshore account just outside Cardiganshire Bay. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And you've got a, a Welsh apprentice, haven't you? Yes, yeah, absolutely. One of your two lads. So, yeah. you, so you're still trying to teach them how to shoe horses well then? Well, there's a couple of Wales boys that have done not too bad over the last few years. So Including yourself. Well, thank you very much, but uh, no, keeping it going. Not the strongest Welsh accent. Well, if you add Tom beer, Jones has got a stronger just, Welsh accent. Just you? add beer. Just add beer. Oh, and it starts to come out. Exactly. So now um, I know that you know there's other sides to your life, and uh, one of them is shooting. Yes. And you've got a new Labrador pup. I have. Yes. Which is within a few days. Yeah. Of yours. Uh, yeah, the same age as my Labrador pup. So. Uh, there we are. So a lot of work to be done, but at the moment they're great fun. And oh, brilliant! It's so much fun. And yeah. like at the end of a long day, you come home tired and knackered, but you find yourself smiling and playing. And mm. yeah, it's a. Uh, it, she's a real. Uh, she's a real delight. Yeah. Well, she's lovely, and we. I'll see if I can put up a picture of us with you holding oh, her and, yeah. in your forge because she wanted to come in the forge probably because she thought there was some food there. Hundred percent. But that's um, that's Labradors for you, uh, and so you you game shoot yep. and uh, yeah stalk, uh, do a lot of stalking and a, a, a lot of uh, shotgun uh, game shooting, um, yeah, and, and a bit of clay pigeon in the summer. 
to fill the gap in between? Well, I, I do a bit of clay and a little bit of game, and I would have to say I have been stalking deer twice, and I did get one on each time, but rifle shooting is not my thing. Oh, it's a different game, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's just, they both go bang and you put yeah. them on the shoulder, but it's a different type of shooting. Altogether. Totally, yeah. totally. But I'm glad you do that because you're always so busy and we all need something else oh, yeah. to do. But you're also... Um, a great supporter of our association, yeah. uh, BFBA, British Barriers and Blacksmiths Association. And I know um, we met up today at your forge and you'd had to rush back from uh, having a look at the site for the Farrier Focus. So yeah. it takes time away from your business as well. It does, it does. And I, if it wasn't for the fact that I've got a very uh, supportive partner and she's amazing at giving me uh, you know, the space to be able to do the the zoom calls and the, and the meetings and, and nip off with this and that uh, the guys are really understanding when we have 27 phone calls a week that come in about something it, it is a huge commitment yeah. uh, but it's something I'm really passionate and I believe in and I'm told God willing yep. you will be president next so. year yeah exactly yeah so I've been really fortunate to be vice president this last two years now or the 18 months uh, since our uh, since our AGM so yeah all being well in May uh, look forward to being able to be the number one salesman for the uh, for the, for the association. Yeah, well, I'm I've probably been a member longer than most. I'm certainly I I think I'm 35 years being a member. Blimey! I'm on the retired list now. Another five. I think I get yeah. all the. Another, yeah, is it another five, and you get free membership for life? Oh crikey! <laughs> I'll be after that then. Okay, yeah, okay. so. So I never, I've never done the committee thing, Ben. I'd have to say I always did too much yeah. with the company, and then the council. But yes, I think it, professional people should join their association. There, I know associations, and I can tell you this as somebody who's going to be president because you don't need me to tell you it. Can drive you crazy, can't they? Yeah. Um, but nevertheless, we all have to, we have to support, and standing on the outside booing is not what we should be doing. We should be on the inside fighting our corner. Exactly. I think the, the, the one thing the association's taught me is that actually, you know, it, it absolutely has a place and it's about being relevant. And I think when we've got involved in things and we've helped show farriers how they can do things better, how they can be supported, certainly when COVID came, a lot of farriers then realised how relevant we were. And I think the one thing is, you know, we don't have... We don't have any any power as such, like the registration council. We can't change the exams, like the company. But, but what we can do is we can help farriers to work better and give them the support that they don't get. Farriers work on their own, out of their vehicles. They're a one-man band, and they don't have anyone there to help support them in times of hardship. Um, but equally, there are opportunities where we can put things on, like social events like Focus, that actually give us quite a big boost you know when we get there and we see friends that we haven't seen for a while and do all those things and learn and I think that's the one thing I'm really passionate about going forward is encouraging farriers to become more professional and develop our industry you know get them to understand how good they are and how actually learning new things is a good thing and and help help the industry move forward you know well I went to the farrier focus before covid so 2019 there were a thousand people, a thousand farriers there over the two days. Correct. And to put it in perspective of people that know, there are only 3,000 farriers in this country. Correct. To get 33% is 
pretty big. The grant. Oh, that's it was magnificent, yeah. and it was a wonderful event. Yeah. And I know we had fifty-eight exhibitors. Yeah. So you think of how many businesses there are in Farrery. Yeah. And you know. No, it was pretty it much was nearly hundred percent. I was there the two days, which yeah. nearly killed me. Yeah. But um. That was probably just the bar bill. <laughs> I usually find somebody. Yeah. Buying there we go. Then, um, An apprentice somewhere that owes you. But uh, you know, I'm looking forward to this one. We, I, you know, as I say, today was you were up there trying to organise it a bit belatedly and we're yeah. not quite sure how it go it will go but whatever you do is going to be appreciated and you said about when Covid came into this country I think everybody it's true what you said it's easy for you to say as vice president but our association acted so quick uh, you spoke to government didn't you 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 it was allowed that farriers was seen as a, I'm trying to think, a prof- profession. So, well, yeah, but as a profession that needed to go out and do their work from a, from from an animal welfare point of view, because um, the vets for a while were shut down, weren't they? Yeah, but, but the farriers weren't. Vet, vets spent three or four months still just working on emergency. And I mean, to to give them their dues, it was the Farriers Registration Council that had the direct communication with Gov. Yeah. Uh, however, what we did as an association is we put the guidance together yeah. with uh, the Horse Council, um, which is uh, effectively what DEFRA do their soundboarding and work. Well, we have to translate DEFRA. So, uh, so basically, the government department uh, of farming and agriculture, yes. which obviously covers a, you know a question yeah. and everything. Um, but the, the Horse Council is effectively their equine think tank. Yeah. So every organisation is involved within equestrianism has an ability to be there. I got the association a seat about three years ago, uh, and it and it like I said it, it clicked, you know, and we were able to have a really good meeting, uh, and we got the CEO of World Horse Welfare, and uh, Red Wings, and the Horse Trust, and uh, the chairman of uh, the council, who's also the chairman of Beaver at the time, and. Yeah, we managed to produce this guidance, which pretty much was stamped and sent out straight away. Yeah, I think all of us were, re- as, as a yeah. member of the association, we were impressed yeah. uh, of how quickly you acted and how yeah. well you acted for the craft. So it was a great advert for well, our association. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now, you also, and you'll have to tell me whether you just stepped down from it, but I know you was on the Farriers Registration Council, Correct. so I, again, I can share the pain with you. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah exactly. Uh, so um, yeah, I I came off that uh, in May, just uh, just after May. Um, I'd done four years as the elected representative on behalf of the association, um, and it you know it was amazing to be part of. Uh, got to see a huge change in in the in the count in the council in its um, its ability to look forward. Um, David Hall did a great job uh, as chairman, and and put so many good things in place and. And got so many good ideas and good people round round the table. Um, it was a tough time, you know. We we obviously saw um, the registration fees and things like that change, which rightly or wrongly, you know, with with being recognised as a profession, which kept us working when COVID and everyone else was shut down. By the fact that we showed our professional requirement to be out there, you know, comes at a cost. And, and the things that go hand in hand with that, whilst they're a bit of pill to swallow at times, actually, if you put the boot on the other foot and you were employing someone to come in and do something, you'd want them to, to have that level of uh, regulation 
Um, it was a hard, it was a real hard one, but I must admit I've learned so much that uh, that that came out of that, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm I was really impressed. Well, people often use the term a thankless task, oh. but I know that being on the council yeah. is one role that you know the, the the association looks after its members, the worship company affairs looks after the standards and exams, but the policeman no, well, is the FRC yeah, yeah. is is the one so. So, uh, yeah, you're never really going to get many pats on the back. No, you're not. And, and the, the sad thing is people don't realise how much, you know, how much the, the farriers on that committee actually do. You know, it's, it's not a cakewalk for, for stuff. There are, there's a huge amount of reading, there's a huge amount of discussion that goes into things. And, and quite often it's not the first tier uh, consequence, which is the reason why we've done something. It's, it's the long game that you have to think about when you're making these sort of policy decisions. And then... Um, yeah, I, I learned a huge amount from it, which, um, which I'm really grateful for. And but I'm also at the same time quite grateful to have to only have one thing to worry about now, because uh, like you know, you can end up spending a lot of time doing a lot of things for free. Yeah, yeah. Those of us that put our I don't know our head above the yeah, parapet yeah, yeah. tend to do that. Um, but it's great that you are doing it, Ben. Thank you. Um, so I turn now to the deep philosophical question, which I ask anybody I'm interviewing for this podcast. So uh, my question to you is, what is the most important thing that you've learned in life? To do the right thing. Give us an example of that. I think it's one of those things that, you know, without without finding one thing, sometimes the right thing is not the right thing for you, but it's the right thing for anyone looking in on that situation. I always encourage my apprentices, being professional, being honest, it's do the right thing. If someone, you know, if you've messed up, put your hand up, deal with it, take things front on, you know, um, be in charge of the bad news. Um, and doing the right thing, sometimes it's hard when you've got an owner that, doesn't want you to be so honest or doesn't want you to say what you need to say but ultimately you know have the courage of your conviction and and doing the right thing as I think generally in the long term gives you that level of um what's the word reputation and I think yeah. that's that's well reputations take years to build seconds to lose yeah yeah and you know what, Ben, you answered that question, the quickest answer anybody had ever given me, and you gave the longest explanation for it, so well done. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. As, as, as most of your country, fellow countrymen are, you're a man of words. Oh, so um, I'm going to draw it to a close now, because I know you've got at least one apprentice out yeah. there dinging away. Yeah. I don't know whether that's come over on the, on the podcast. I'll let you get back to him. Uh, we've had a great morning, um, and uh, you know I've known you slightly for years, and it was great to come here for the day and um, spend yeah. a day with you and yeah. see you as the consummate professional that you are. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you in. A real honour, and thank you very much for coming over. No problem at all. Thanks, Ben.
This podcast was sponsored by Strom's Home UK and we're grateful to them for doing that. We'd like to thank Hoofcare Essentials Foundation and their partners for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more information at hoofcareessentials.com. You can follow more of Simon's work on Instagram and Facebook at Dr. Simon Curtis. To get in contact, please email thehoofofthehorse at gmail.com. And for everything else, go to drsimoncurtis.com. Thanks for listening.